Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, I, I feel like we should start with a moment of silence for the Dodgers. All right. All right. We're done. All right. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's my message today. Uh, <laughs> I want to welcome you. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors. Uh, excited about this weekend. We've got coming with the All Serve, the 24 hours. Brian, what are we up to like with the number of people in All Serve right now? Come on. 1,600 people going out to all serve, that awesome, and then we're going to do the 24 hours of prayer and this new series I'll be doing, Culture in Crisis, for a couple weeks, and so we've got a lot of things uh, coming up, but uh, today we're going to continue on in this series that we've been in, um, and so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. If you've never been here before, you'll definitely want to take that out because we use this every week for our time of teaching. If you guys are ready to go, I'm all set. You ready to go? Okay. God, we're just excited to be here and part of what you're doing uh, in the world uh, and in this church. God, unleashing a movement of truly passionate Christ followers. It's just so good to be here and to worship you, to be in your presence, and to be your church, to be the temple of the living God. And so today, as we talk about that, we pray that you would come and lead and guide and do all the things that only you can do. Speak to us by name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in the last two or three months called Sent. Uh, piercing the darkness. And for those of you who are brand new, this is actually the fourth uh, mini-series in a much larger, longer series called Sent, which is a study of one of the most important books in our Bible, in our New Testament, called the book of Acts. And the book of Acts kind of documents, describes the rise and rapid growth of the movement of Jesus after the resurrection for the next 30 years as it spreads across the Roman Empire. So the last few weeks, we've been watching as one of the key characters in this story, uh, one of the key leaders, a man by the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, has uh, been traveling long distance to Jerusalem, and he's traveling with eight of his colleagues and friends, kind of converts of him, mostly Gentile converts of his, that have come to Christ, and they're, they're traveling to Jerusalem to visit the, kind of the mother church where the movement began, but also to deliver a large financial gift as a way to, uh, to it's from the Gentile churches that Paul has started, to build bridges with the Jewish church there because they're trying to do something unprecedented in the history of the world, bringing Jews and Gentiles together in this one new movement. And so last week, if you were here, we watched this Paul. He's in town. Uh, he has been there for about a week. And one day he goes up onto Temple Mount, huge, incredible complex, 300 yards on one side, 500 on the other, huge uh, uh, fortress-like walls, uh, you know, more like a, a castle than like a church. Uh, and he goes up on Temple Mount and he's uh, just going to be going to worship and all of a sudden, some Jews recognized him from the province of Asia, and they'd had a lot of conflict with him there, and so they see him, and they make this assumption. It's a wild assumption. It's a wrong assumption, but they make an assumption that he's taken one of his colleagues, one of these Gentile converts, uh, into one of the inner court areas of the temple, past that four-and-a-half-foot barrier beyond which no Gentile was allowed to go on pain of death. And, uh, and so they start a riot, and in the riot, Paul is almost killed. He's beaten and uh, fortunately, the Roman commander of the army that is uh, stationed right there, they've got in the northwest corner of the complex, the, the Roman Antonia Fortress, uh, they come rushing down, rescue Paul, put him on top of their shoulders, carrying him out. But as they're going up the stairs against this mob scene, uh, Paul asks the commander, hey, would it be okay if I spoke to the crowd? You know, it's just like awesome opportunity. They're all here. They're obviously got a lot of energy this morning. And so uh, can I just like speak to them? And so uh, the Roman commander is actually taken back because this whole scene that we're seeing, th this scene is playing out, we believe, in the year 57 AD, 
We know that the 50s uh, in, in, in the first century, the 50s in Jerusalem were a very patriotic, nationalistic time. Many rebellions, uh, anything Gentile was hated. Uh, and so there had recently been a rebellion against Rome led by a terrorist, an Egyptian Jew. Um, and we actually know about this from secular sources as well. And so this Roman commander, he doesn't know what's going on. He assumes Paul is this Egyptian Jew that's come back because he had escaped uh, after this rebellion. And uh, he assumes he's that. But when Paul speaks and says, could I speak to the crowd? He's kind of taken back probably because of Paul's uh, educated Greek. And uh, he's like, hey, aren't you that guy? No, I'm not that guy. Uh, and he says, okay, well, I'll let you speak. And so let's see what happens. So there in your note sheet, we have a section called Community 101, Paul's Story. And we're going to uh, pick it up at chapter uh, 21, where we left in last time, uh, in verse 37. So uh, we'll, we'll actually pick it up for 35, just to set the scene. So when Paul reached the steps, uh, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that kept following him saying, get rid of him. And so it's a mob scene. And again, to picture the emotion of this scene, you've got to picture uh, the emotion today of, of maybe... Um, uh, some like, uh, maybe it's Mecca, and it's during, you know, Ramadan or something, and you got thousands and thousands and thousands of, of, of uh, Muslims kind of going to Mecca, and then there's this one guy who's famous for attacking Islam, like shows up in the crowd. It's like that kind of emotion, that kind of a, a riot feel. And so uh, as the soldiers, verse 37, were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, hey, may I say something to you? And, uh, and he says, do you speak Greek? Um, he said, aren't you the Egyptian that started the revolt and led 4,000 terrorists uh, into the wilderness some time ago? So he, he thought that that's who he was. And Paul says, no way, I, I'm a Jew. Uh, I'm from uh, Tarsus in Cilicia. It's a cit- I'm a citizen of no ordinary city. Uh, so in ancient times, uh, you often, much like today, you know, the, the more famous city you're from, uh, the more clout you have. And uh, he was actually not just from Tarsus, which was a famous university city, but he was a citizen, official citizen, which carried rights uh, with it. And so the Roman commander is really pretty impressed. And so uh, he's, and Paul says, please, let me speak to these people. And so after receiving his permission, Paul stands in the steps, and he's going to start uh, speaking. Now, what he's going to do, he's actually going to be giving almost like a legal defense here. Uh, think of him like standing before, think of the crowd like a huge jury, and he's the accused, and, and he's going to make it a defense. In fact, in the Greek, the word for this defense is apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics from. So it's a, it's a technical term. And uh, remember what Paul was accused of. That when, he, when the riot started, what he was accused of, the Jews uh, said he'd taken a Gentile into this inner court past the four and a half foot wall, which was illegal. But what they said is this is the man who speaks against our people everywhere on every occasion, and he speaks against the law, and he speaks against this place, the temple. So the accusation was that Paul was anti-Israel. He was like a traitor to his own people, that he was against Israel. He was against Yahweh. He was against, uh, he was against the, the Torah, the law of Moses. He was against uh, the temple itself. And so what we're going to see is as Paul makes his defense, and if you didn't know, if you didn't kind of stop, uh, stand back and, and look at this, you'd miss this. It's easy to miss, but his defense is very carefully chosen to, uh, to, uh, to address those issues. He wants to show, I am not anti-Israel, I am not anti-law, I am not anti-temple, I'm pro all those things, right? In fact, I am here to tell you the next chapter in our, natural his- in our national history. And so he starts off and he says, uh, 
Uh, it says, uh, after receiving his, the permission, he stands in the steps. He tur- uh, motions to the crowd with his hand like, or- like a public order would do in those days. And then when they're all silent, he says to them in Aramaic. Now, this is our, their native tongue. And so they're going to, hey, he's one of us. And uh, he says, brothers and fathers, listen to my apologia. Listen to my defense. Now, uh, he's saying brothers and fathers. So was, we're Jews. You know, we're all family here. Uh, we all come from Abraham, our father. You're my brothers. You're my fathers. I'm one of you. And uh, when they heard him speak in Aramaic, they became very quiet. All right, let's let him speak. And so he starts telling him a story. Hey, I'm a Jew like you. I, I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up right here in this city, in Jerusalem. I, I, I'm a local, you know. I, I, I know how to use the subway, everything, you know. So... Um, I, I studied under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was like the leading professor of their day. Uh, he was like the most, one of the most respected Jewish rabbis of their day. He said, I studied under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I'm not anti-law. I'm pro-law. I love the law. Um, and I said, I was just as zealous for God as any of you who are trying to kill me today. <laughs> so uh, I persecuted the followers of the way. Remember, the way was the name of this Christian movement earlier. Uh, I, in fact, I persecuted them to their death. I arrested both men and women. I threw them into prison as the high priest. All the council, the Sanhedrin, can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus. That's 135 miles to the north. Um, and I went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. I mean, I was all in. I was where you are. The way you feel today, that's exactly where I was. He says, um, but I got to tell you my story. About noon, I came, uh, as I came near to Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. Now, you need to, to hear this as a Jewish audience would hear this. The nation of Israel had been established through divine revelation. The story of their history is the story of God appearing to Abraham. God appearing to Moses at the burning bush. God appearing to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's army. God appearing to Isaiah in the temple. The Lord lifted up. God, uh, uh, most of all, God appearing to Ezekiel, one like a son of man in this amazing glory of God vision. The, the story of Israel is a story of divine revelation where God shows up in all his glory and reveals truth for the nation. That's their story. And Paul says, I'm stepping into that story. That's what happened to me, just like Moses, just like Isaiah. And so now if you're a Jew, you're like, okay, well, let's listen to see this. This is kind of sounding familiar here, right? So he said, uh, uh, this bright light from heaven, in other words, the glory of God flashed around me, and it was so bright, I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, note Jewish language, Saul, Saul, uh, in Hebrew, Shaul, Shaul, why do you persecute me? Now, this is a very interesting question. We'll come back to it later. But, uh, but he can't make it out. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, there were many visions of God. But the one that this is most similar to is the vision that Ezekiel has in Ezekiel chapter 1. You may check it out later on. But in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, Ezekiel sees the glory of God, and he sees one like a son of man in the vision. Right? And so Paul, as a good Jew, he knows it's the glory of God, but he's like, I need to know who I'm talking to here. And so he asks him, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Now, at this moment, uh, this is like the worst moment of Paul's life. Because remember, and we studied this back on Easter in Acts 9, but at this moment, 
he has just committed as a Jew like the unpardonable sin. Um, he has been absolutely convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is a fraud and that he is a false Messiah, that his whole claim to be the king of Israel was blasphemous, and therefore when he was crucified for high treason, he got exactly what he deserved. And Paul believed that therefore as he punished and beat and voted for the death and execution of the followers, he was doing the right thing. And in this moment, he realizes, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments in your life where you think you're 100% right, and all of a sudden you realize you're 100% wrong. But he realizes that he has committed the worst possible sin of being on the wrong side of Messiah. And so whenever I read this, I just, the word shivers goes through me. Like shivers, shockwaves, you know, going through your system. Uh, His life flashing before his eyes. I'm sure he thinks like, I'm a Gautner. That's why he's come, to destroy me. Uh, But of course, that's not what happens. And so uh, he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting and, uh, and so Paul said, so my companions, they saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of who is speaking to me. And I asked him, what should I do? And he said, well, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything you've been assigned to do. So my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me, fried my retina. So a man named Ananias, and notice how he introduces. So notice what's happened so far. Glory of God, appearance of Jesus, right? Um, this is all fitting into the Jewish narrative. And now what's the next step? Well, the next key character in this story, we're going to find that is a devout Jew. This is not by accident that Paul is introducing this story. He wants a a devout Jew who loves Israel, who loves the law. That's the one that God called to come heal me. You see, it's all part of our national story. And so he says, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. He was highly respected by the Jews. I'm not anti-law. Uh, I'm not anti-Israel. Uh, this movement is not anti-law, not anti-Israel. And uh, he said, he stood beside me, he said, Brother Saul. So in the moment uh, of Paul meeting Jesus, he went from persecutor to brother. And he said, receive your sight. And so at that moment, I was able to see. And so now we have not only a supernatural revelation of Messiah, we have a supernatural healing from a very devout, law-abiding Jew. And so uh, he says, the God of our ancestors, catch that, the Jewish story, uh, the, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he's chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, in other words, Messiah, to hear words from his mouth, and you will be his witness to all people of what you've seen and heard, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, call on his name. And so now Paul is going to fast forward in time three years. You may remember this from earlier than Acts. After Paul meets Jesus, he does a little bit of ministry in Damascus. Then he heads out into the desert of Arabia for three years. We don't know what he was doing. He may have been spending time with Jesus. He may have been evangelizing uh, Arabs. We don't know. But uh, one way or another, uh, for three years, he's gone. But after three years, he comes back to Jerusalem. Then when he comes back to Jerusalem, an amazing thing happens is that he's going to have a vision of God in the temple. Notice that. I'm not anti-temple. God shows up until, uh, and it's going to be a vision of Jesus. Uh, so much like Isaiah had a vision of God, of God, and Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, he has a vision, but it's a vision of the Lord Jesus speaking to him in the temple. And so uh, when he returned to Jerusalem, I was praying at the temple. I fell into a trance. I saw the Lord, that would be Lord Jesus, speaking to me. He said, quick, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. 
Now, Paul is going to push back on this because he's going to say, wait a second. If there's anyone the leaders of the Jewish nation will listen to, it's me. I mean, I was one of them. I was brought up in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel. I was the shining star of the Republican Party (laughs) or the Democratic Party. Uh, like I was the heir apparent. You know, I, I was highly respected when they, they wanted to persecute the movement. They chose me. I was their emissary. I knew the high priest personally. I knew if anyone can open their eyes and tell them that, hey, we've been wrong, uh, that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Messiah. If anyone will have credibility, it will be me. I was one of them. And Jesus says, no, it's exactly the opposite. Because the reality is, they don't want to know the truth. You know, you can't handle the truth. So, and the reality is, you're going to become their worst nightmare. Because of the credibility you have, you're going to be the most dangerous witness for this new movement. And so the Lord, uh, uh, in verse 19, Lord, I replied, these people, they know I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, you know, back in Acts 7, I stood there giving my approval, guarding the clothes of those who are killing him. And the the Lord said, go, you know, get out of town. I'm going to send you far away from here to the Gentiles. Now, up until this point, if you were there like you were a reporter, say for CNN, you're watching the crowd, you have the cameras going. If you were there, what you'd be watching is this very angry crowd. The longer Paul is speaking, their body language is, it's relaxing. Maybe he did have a vision. He's obviously not anti-law. He studied under Gamaliel. I didn't know that. Um, Like, that's crazy. Oh, that's right. I remember hearing 20 years ago, he was that persecutor guy. Yeah, okay, so he was one of us. And well, maybe he did have some kind of vision and he studied vision in the temple. You know, it's like, he's not anti-temple. You see what's going on? Like everyone's like kind of letting down. But the moment he says this, the crowd is going to go wild. And the reason is, remember where we are in the 50s, which is not the Eisenhower era. <laughs> uh, we're in the 50s, first century, and it's a very patriotic time. There is an extreme hatred of all things Gentiles. They hate the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the Romans who have invaded their city. The Gentiles are the dogs The Gentiles are going to get theirs when Messiah comes back. The very strong sense of national patriotism and the thought that the Messiah of Israel would send a messenger not to the Jerusalem who will reject him, but to the Gentiles, this was off their chart. This was like outside. They could not handle this. And so this pushes their buttons. They go crazy. Now remember, the commander who's there, the Roman commander who gave him permission to speak, he probably doesn't speak Aramaic. So he's not probably even following this whole thing. And all he knows is that everything's calming down. He's like, oh, good. This is going to look good. And then all of a sudden, boom. And he's like, what just happened here? So anyway, he's, he needs to find out some answers. So uh, the crowd in verse 22, they listened to Paul until he said this, but then they raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Kill him. And as they're, look, they're shouting, they're throwing off their clothes, they're flinging dust in the air. 
And the commander's like, what is going on? So he orders that Paul be taken into the barracks, and he directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people are shouting like this. What is going on? Now, up to this point, Paul has suffered a lot for Jesus. We know from 2 Corinthians 12, that was written about a year before this event, that by this point in his life, Paul had been beaten by the Romans, official punishment, beaten with rods, which was their normal way, three times. We saw once uh, in Acts 16, we saw it in Philippi, uh, but three times. We know that Paul had been whipped with leather whips by the Jews, 39 lashes, five times. So what, what we're learning from this is that a lot of Paul's life isn't covered in Acts. Um, but Paul had never been flogged by the Romans. This was a whole different level of punishment. A Roman flogging was the flogging that Jesus went through right before his crucifixion. A Roman flogging was carried out with an instrument called the Roman flagellum. It was a, a wooden-handled whip. It had many strips of leather, uh, often nine, so sometimes called the cat of nine tails, but many uh, strips of leather. But at the end of the strips of leather uh, were pieces of bone or glass or wire. And so what would happen, they would, they would uh, chain the prisoner to like a stone post and then uh, spread his legs like this and then chain him there so he's, he's exposed. And then the, uh, the, the soldier administering it would begin to lash. And what would happen is not only would those leather uh, lashes you know, rip into your body, but the worst of it was these pieces of bone, metal, and glass would lodge in your flesh, and then they would jerk it back, which would rip off your flesh. So when you got done with the Roman flogging, you'd be exposed, bone, muscle, often internal organs exposed. Many times men would die from a Roman flogging. If they didn't, they often be crippled for life. So at this point is what they're doing, saying, let's flog him, let's find out what's going on. The one thing that he doesn't know, and this is Paul's ace in the hole, is that Paul is a Roman citizen. We've seen that before. And there were very strict laws about what you could do to a Roman citizen. And remember, there were very few Roman citizens in the Roman Empire. It was a high, high honor. And so you couldn't, you couldn't arrest them. You couldn't put them in chains without fair, you know, due process. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't whip them like this kind of, kind of punishment. And so Paul, uh, you know, as he's being uh, strapped down to the thing, he just turns and just kind of nonchalantly, hey, do you think this is really the right thing to do, you know, to like a Roman citizen? And it freaks them out. Because they can get in serious trouble for this, just like today, like excessive police force or something like that. And so, uh, anyway, so um, in verse uh, 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, hey, is it legal, just by the way, uh, for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it and said, what are you thinking? Uh, what are you going to do? This man's a Roman citizen. And so the commander goes to Paul and he says, hey, is that really true? Now, there, the crime for committing to be, uh, or, or for, uh, for uh, claiming to be a Roman citizen when you weren't was often death. Right? This is a serious thing. So he says, hey, um, is that really true? And he said, yes, I am. And so the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Um, this was not legal. You couldn't buy your citizenship, but during the reign of Emperor Claudius, which is when this is happening, we know historically that often people did pay very large bribes to become a Roman citizen. And so he says, I, I've actually paid for mine. And uh, Paul says, uh, yeah, but I was born a citizen. In other words, something, his family in the past had served Rome in some way that they'd honored him uh, with a Roman citizenship, which is unusual. 
And so, but, but God really used us. And so those who are about to interrogate him withdrew him Im- immediately. You, know, you see the guy with the whip. It's like, hey, I got to go to the bathroom. Could you hold this? Uh, and and uh, he's covering his face from the cameras. He goes like, you know, um, yeah, yeah, I was never here. I was never here. Um, and, so, uh, those, and so the commander himself was alarmed. In the Greek it said afraid. The word is phobeo, scared to death. Because he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. And so but the Romans, he's still got to find out what's going on here. Okay, so I can't do it that way. How can I do it? So the commander wants to find out exactly why Paul is being accused by the Jews. What's going on? I mean, he's in charge of civil, uh, civil peace in this city. He's got a major riot on his hands. It's very dangerous. Uh, he will be held accountable if there's riots. So he needs to get to the bottom of this. And so the next day, he released Paul, and he ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high, uh, high court, like their Senate slash Supreme Court, uh, 70 members plus the high priest to assemble sort of like a congressional hearing, fact-finding, and, uh, and he brought Paul and had him stand before him. And so next week, we'll, we'll come back to this as we wrap up this fourth uh, series next week. And we're going to come back and uh, see what happens in this fact-finding, uh, the meeting of this high council. But uh, for today, I want to do something completely different. Um, for today, I want to go back and look at this initial encounter between the, the man who became the Apostle Paul and Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, because there's something that happens in this uh, initial dialogue, this initial Q&A between Jesus and Paul that starts their conversation that has um, a huge impact on Paul for the rest of his life of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and has a huge impact for us today as a church. What does it mean to be part of the movement of Jesus? What does it be, mean to be the church of Jesus? And so there in your note sheet... You have a section that's called uh, Community 101, Jesus' Vision. And what I want to do today is just lay out one big picture principle and then come back and ask one uh, penetrating question with some steps underneath it. All right, so here we go. Uh, The big picture principle, and I got to admit, when you hear this, you're going to go like, where did you get that? That's not from there. And I'm going like, yeah, that's okay. I just want to talk about this. No, just kidding. Uh, It actually is. Just hang with me. But it goes like this, very simple, Jesus came to create a community. And when Jesus came, he didn't come just to save individuals, all right? He came to create a whole new community, uh, a new humanity, um, a a new people that will rule with him forever. That's kind of his whole vision. Um, Now, the question is, well, where do you get that out of this? Like, if you were paying attention, which I know some of you were, that um, as we went through, Paul said nothing about a new community, right? There was nothing there about a new community, nothing about a church, nothing about, he never got that far. They stopped him. They stopped him when he mentioned Gentiles, right? Uh, and so, uh, so where does it come from? But I want to draw your attention to a passage that's incredibly important that most scholars believe deeply impacted Paul, but it's easy to miss. And it's uh, there in chapter 22 in verse 7 and 8. And so, Luke is describing, Paul is describing his initial encounter with Jesus, and it starts with this brief dialogue, this Q&A. And it says in verse 7, he says, I fell to the ground, and I heard the voice say to me, and so here comes the first question. And the question from Jesus is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute, what comes next? Okay, let's say it together. Why do you persecute me? Now, if you are a longtime Christ follower, I'm going to forgive you here, because it's probably you missed the obvious. 
Because we, we, as a long-time Christ follower, we get used to hearing accounts, and we, we just kind of miss the obvious, right? If you're a brand-new Christ follower, or this is new to you, first time kind of ever read this passage, you may have picked this up, may not, but, uh, but you should have. Right? It's really an odd question. And the Apostle Paul is going from city to city, arresting Christians, uh, beating them, throwing them in prison, voting for their death. And so Jesus meets with him, and he says to him, the question is, why are you persecuting what? Me. Now, if you stop and think about it, that's an odd question. Like if you were asking the question, if I were asking the question, it's not what we would ask. What we would say is, why are you persecuting my followers? We wouldn't say, why are you persecuting me? I'm at the right hand of God. Uh, Why are you persecuting me? But here's the thing. Most scholars believe this was an incredibly powerful opening conversation that shaped Paul for the rest of his life. Because here was the truth that Jesus was beginning to reveal to Paul at this very first encounter. And it goes like this, that when you touch a follower of Jesus, you touch Jesus. That there is an organic link between the followers of Jesus and Jesus through his Holy Spirit. That that becoming a Christian is not like joining a political party. Becoming a Christian is not like joining a political action group or a community service group or a team. That becoming a follower of Jesus is becoming part of Jesus. That there is this organic link. This is why Paul describes believers always as we're in Christ. Christ is in us. We are in Christ. And he used lots of metaphors to describe this unique relationship. But one of his most famous is the body of Christ. He is the head. We're his body. We're united to touch him is to touch, touch us is to touch him. So for example, later on in his writings, uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, he'll write 20 years later, he said, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Notice that language, into one body, into this new reality, this organic unity. Christ in us, us in Christ, we're united. And he says, it doesn't matter whether you're Jews or Greeks or slave or free. We were all given the one spirit to drink. That's what unites us. And he said, so you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And so when you come to Jesus, there is this uh, organic online connection that happens through his Holy Spirit. You're united. This, by the way, this is why sexual immorality is such a big deal. Because in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, don't you understand that when you have sex with someone outside your marriage, you become one flesh with them? He says, but the reality is, because you're a follower of Jesus, you're one spirit with Jesus. And so when you have sex in that way, you're taking Jesus with you in that sin. You see? And so as followers of Jesus, we are connected to him. And so here's the point, that when Jesus came, he didn't come just to save individuals. Many times in our culture today, we'll have people say that I have a relationship with God, but it's just me and God. Like, I don't need to be part of any church or any community. It's just me and God. And that's a complete violation of the vision of Jesus. And he came not to just save individuals, but to create a new humanity, a new community. And here's the thing. If you say, well, what is so special about this new humanity 
Paul would say this, this new community is the temple of the living God. Now this is interesting because today we have seen through Paul's defense, Paul was very pro-temple, wasn't he? He, Their their claim was he's anti-temple. He wasn't anti-temple. Three years after his conversion, he went back and worshiped at the temple. Jesus met him at the temple. 25 years after his conversion, he's coming to Acts in this passage, and he's worshiping at the temple. He's not anti-temple, but here's what Paul realizes. Paul realizes, and we'll see this in just a minute, that we are entering into a new age with the coming of Messiah. And this temple that's in Jerusalem, that to Jewish mindset was the place where heaven meets earth. Think, what is the temple? For a Jew, the temple is a place where heaven meets earth. It's the place where God dwells. It's the place where God speaks. It's the place where God forgives. It's a place where God heals. It's a place where people come from all the world to meet the true God of Israel, where God is revealed. That is what the temple is. And what Paul realizes is the time of the physical temple, just like Jesus prophesied, that's coming to an end. The Messiah has come, and the Messiah is building, as the Jews believed he would, a new temple. But the new temple is not a physical temple. It is a spiritual temple made up of his people. See, the new community of Jesus is designed to be the place where God reveals himself. The new community of Jesus is a place where God shows up, where God speaks, where God heals, where God forgives, where God reveals who he is to a world. The community of Jesus is the new temple, and it's the place where the walls are broken down. You see, remember that as Paul was sharing his story, his personal encounter with Jesus, everyone was listening quietly until he came to the point where he said, the Messiah sent me to the Gentiles. Do you remember in the temple, there in Jerusalem, do you remember what we learned last week, that the outer courts of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. Anyone could go there. But remember, as you move closer to the temple, you came to that four and a half foot stone wall completely surrounded the temple. And on it, it said, no Gentiles pass this point on pain of death. Inscribed in stone in both Latin and Greek. Remember that? That wall was a symbol of what Israel this time believed. That if you're a Gentile, you cannot come close to the God of Israel. You can't be part. And you can't be part of the holy nation. You can't have citizenship in Israel. You're an outsider. That wall was a visual, um, a visual reminder that they had put up of their mentality, which was never God's mentality. There's no wall like this in the temple of, of Solomon. But it was their understanding, a wrong understanding of their role. See, the role of the nation of Israel was to be the conduit through whom Messiah would come that God would create this new community. And that's what they lost sight of. And so later on, Paul would write about Jesus' vision for this new community that we would be the temple of God. And there in your note sheet, I put this in uh, Ephesians 2. I put it in the New Living just because it's real simple to follow. But, you know, Paul's writing to the, the churches of, around Ephesus, right? They're mostly Gentiles, some Jews. And so he's writing to these churches. He said, you Gentiles, you used to be what? Outsiders, right? You couldn't come past the wall. You couldn't be part of the holy nation. You weren't part of the promises. You couldn't, Messiah would belong to you. He said, in those days, you were living apart from Christ. Remember, Christ means what? 
Whoa. That was weak. Weak. Okay, so Christ means what? Messiah, right? That's the Greek. Christ is Greek for Hebrew Messiah. Okay, the, the anointed one. So in those days, you were living apart from Messiah. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. You lived in this world without God and without hope. You know, before Messiah came, you were completely separate. But now you've been united with Messiah Jesus. For Messiah himself has brought peace to us. He united, catch this, he united Jews and Gentiles into one people. Remember Paul bringing this financial gift? Why? Because he's trying to affirm that reality and build this bond, this unity. And so he made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. And now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and foreigners. You are members of God's family. And together we are his what? House. And by house, he means temple. And you say, how do you know that? Because it's exactly what he says next. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy what? Temple for the Lord. And through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So catch this, the temple in the Old Testament was a picture, a type of God's vision from the start that one day, that through Israel, a Messiah would come that would break down the walls that have separated the human race forever. And we'd create a new people, but not just a new community, a new community organically linked to him and one another through the Holy Spirit, and not just an organically linked community, but a temple of God, a place where God could be revealed through these people, a place where God would speak to these people, a place where God would heal and God would forgive, and where God could be made known in all the world, where people could come from all over to say, who is the real God? And here in this temple, these people they would find the living God. See, that is the vision. And so, as Paul will go on to write later, this breaking down of walls was not just between Jews and Gentiles. It's between, it's between barbarians and Greeks. It's between slave and free. It's between male and female. It's a breakdown of socioeconomic. It's a breakdown of racial barriers. That this new community is the place where the people of God come, experience God, live in community, a community of love. And Jesus said in John 17, by this the whole world will know that I sent you because of the love in this new community. One thing that I think I skipped over there in in the middle as I was reading through that passage, I just skipped this line. Look through that uh, chapter uh, 2 of Ephesians. And uh, several lines down, it says, for Christ himself, has brought peace to us, if you find that. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. Catch us when in his own body on the cross, he broke down what? The wall. And most theologians believe that when Paul wrote this, he is visualizing the four and a half foot wall, that the wall has been broken down in this new community. All right, so uh, that leads us to a question. If this is Jesus' vision, organic community, that he didn't come just to save you so you could be saved and go to heaven when you die, that he came to create this new community that's going to rule with him forever. Uh, and the question is, that, is that how do we respond to Jesus' vision? And so there in your note sheet, you have a section called Community 101, uh, the key question. 
And I want to give you one question, just a simple question, but then I want to break it down into four steps, all right? So um, I'm going to have one question and then try to make it as specific as possible to see how we're doing. And so here's the question. The core question is, are you playing your part? So as you sit here today, maybe it's your first time at Rocky Peak, maybe it's your 800th time, maybe you're super involved here, maybe you're not involved here, uh, maybe you're a believer, you're not a young believer, but are you playing your part? If this is Jesus' vision, not just to save individuals, but to create a community that's a temple of the living God, are you playing your part? Now, to help with that, I'm going to suggest that to play our part, we need to take four important steps, all right? And what I'd like you to do is I give you each step is just for you to do some self-evaluation. Okay, where am I at? Am I, am I taking these steps to carry out Jesus' vision? Okay, so step number one is the step participate. That if we are a temple of God, um, if we're not to be disparate, just Jesus followers, are you participating in the community of Jesus? Are you engaged? Um, you know, last night we had a next step dessert at our house. We do that every month. It was a great time again, about 25 newcomers. And, and a couple of the people shared, you know, that uh, there was one young woman who shared how she had made her way here to Rocky Peak. And it was through a series of events. But one of the things that God began to show her that it wasn't good enough for her just to kind of pursue God on her own, that she needed to be part of community. And this is what we're talking about, that this is sort of the American thing. You know, I, I have my own personal relationship with God, but, you know, church, I don't need that, or community, I don't, I don't need that, whatever. But, but what we're seeing today is that Jesus' vision is a community. And so the question is, are you participating? Are you engaged in community? Uh, earlier in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, we saw the early church uh, in Acts chapter 2. Luke described them like this. He said that they were devoted. Remember, the first 3,000 members came to Jesus on the day of Pentecost. And he said they were devoted to four things. Now, first of all, catch the word devoted. Okay? He said they're, they're uh, devoted to the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to gathering together to hear the word of God about how to follow Jesus, right? I uh, said so they were secondly devoted to the fellowship. So they were devoted to this new community. They were all in. Um, we're told that they met often. They met in the temple courts, large group. They met in their small groups, in their homes. Uh, third thing is that they were devoted to breaking of bread. So they're sharing meals together. They're worshiping together with the Lord's Supper. They're, they're, they're doing life together. It's not just, a con- they just go to church and leave. They're, do- they're connected uh, and then fourth, they're, they're devoted to prayer. They're spending time in the presence of God, seeking God together. And so, so, uh, so in the early, this is kind of a paradigm of what it means. And so the question for you is, are you engaged? You know, the famous uh, theologian, Woody Allen, <laughs> he once said that 80% of success is showing up. And we can't create a community unless we're showing up. And so for a lot of you, you've got to, you're, you're thoroughly connected. I mean, you're, when, you know, the weekends, you're committed. You're going to be here, right, to learn and to worship. And you're in a small group, one of our life group, you're, com- you're very connected. But others of you here, this may be a step for you. It's like, hey, if you want to carry out Jesus' vision in your life, you have to take that step of getting connected, of participating, of getting in the game. You've got to move from out of the stands as a spectator and get on the field. And, and, and so, for, so for many of you, that will be uh, the, the very first step. And so are you uh, participating? By the way, let me, let me say this. 
And, and just, uh, I just always want to put a caveat of this. This is not a shame moment, all right? This, I'm trying to shame anyone here. Uh, this is an educational moment. This is why I feel so strongly that it's important when we gather for worship on the weekends that we come on time. And so some of you are getting really nervous. I'm looking at you right now, uh, which I'm not. Uh, this is, like I said, not a shame moment. Here's the thing. We live in a culture that's increasingly late. We live in a culture today that increasingly we go to everything late, you know? Dodger fans know this. You go in the second inning, you, you leave the seventh inning, right? Um, and now we understand why. Uh, 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 uh. But, you know, you go to movies late. We go to things. And like, we're becoming increasingly like a late culture, right? And so then that carries over to church. We kind of look at this like going to a movie, and if we want to skip the previews, you know, they'll come in late, right? And, and I get that. And I think that most people who come late, there's nothing intentional about it. It's not like, but here's what I want you to catch. There's certain events in our culture you don't want to be late to, like a wedding. Right? Like you don't want to show up after the bride has entered. Right? It's like there's something wrong with that. And what I want to suggest is that when we gather together, you have to understand we are the temple of the living God. And so what happens is we come together, you are one of the priests in the temple. And second, in 1 Peter 2, it says, we are a royal priesthood. So you are a priest of the temple of Jesus Christ. So when we come together, we come together, with one, to worship our king. It's important we're here when it starts. I don't know, I, just, I wasn't even planning on talking about this today until till the, till the start service started. And during, I, I noticed that during our first song today, that there's a certain level of energy in the room. Can I tell you, by the middle of the second song, this place was roaring. The priests were in the house. The priests were in the house. And all of a sudden, the praise going up to the king had doubled or tripled. See, it's not the same when you're not here. And so if you want to be late other places, maybe you figure that out. Unless you're on my staff. Uh, <laughs> then we show up. But, uh, but for here, I want to challenge you spiritually, the paradigm. You look at what happens here. We're not coming to a spectator event. We are coming to meet with God. We are the dwelling of God. And when the priests are not there, when God shows up, something is wrong. So you, you probably have never thought of it like that. And so that's why I mean. it's not a shaming moment. It's an educational moment of what it means to be the temple of the living God. Amen? All right, good. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, second, the second step then is to serve. Now, this is interesting. You know, one of the analogies that Paul uses to describe this new community of Jesus is the analogy of the body, right? And earlier in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 12, we looked at earlier, this is what he said. This is from New Living Translation. He said, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. I just love the simplicity. But in context, he says, we're a body, and so we all have a part. Like eyes, uh, ears, you know, nose, throat, you know, knees, uh, legs, whatever. We're all part of, we all have a part to play. 
And what Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 4, which remember Ephesians 2 is about how we're a temple. Ephesians 4, he goes back to the body analogy, and he says, in this temple, in this body, not only have we all been uniquely gifted to make impact through unique supernatural spiritual gifts, he said it's vital that we're all using them because if we're not doing our part in the community, the community can't grow and thrive. And so he puts it like this in Ephesians 4. He says, from him, from Jesus, the whole body, catch that analogy, he is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and builds itself up in love. Catch this last line, as each part, what? Does its work. Hey, if you have a football team and you have three slackers, you're not gonna win. Every role is important. And the body of Christ, hey, we've all been gifted. We all have time, we all have resources, we have financial resources. It's it's, if the community is to thrive and the temple is to grow and people are gonna come and the message goes out, we all have to be doing our part. And here's what I wanna encourage you, is that some of you, some of you right now may know there's something big God's calling you to and you're resisting. You know, maybe it's to, to share Jesus overseas. Maybe it's to uh, launch a life group and you've been in the same one for 18 years and you don't want to leave. Uh, you know, something kind of big, something that's hard. And, and so if so, you just need to do that because God will bless it and so on. But here's the thing. For many of us, this starts small. Uh, and, and what I want to encourage you is that a small step in the right direction is what can change your life. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a recruiting for our First Impressions team. It's one of our largest teams, um, and it's a, it's a fairly small commitment. You know, what we ask is that you come every, that you serve every other week at one service. It's often not even the entire service, um, and it's, it's fairly straightforward. You know, you serve people donuts. Right? If, if they don't eat the donuts, you eat the donuts. How about that? Uh, that? Maybe you direct parking, you greet people, that you're part of our safety team or whatever. And so it doesn't take a lot of preparation, a lot of outside. It's a fairly simple, uh, it's a low-level commitment, right? But here's what we find. What we find is that our first impressions ministry is one of the most effective ministries we have at being an entry point for people to Rocky Peak. Because what happens, as you begin to serve, you meet people on your team, and you begin to get connected, and you begin to catch a vision. This is bigger than me, that what we're about here is huge, that what we're doing is we're welcoming guests that Jesus is drawing every week. And so if we can help pave the way for them to have a great experience, they can meet God, their lives can be changed, you begin to catch a vision for the kingdom, you get connected with others, you begin to get grow in your own life, and you begin to say, God, is there other ways you want to use me? I'll say, yes, there are, and here's the next step. And so what starts as a very simple, small step, it leads to major life change. And so I just want to encourage you in that. Sometimes this happens in the area of giving. That sometimes it's like it's very easy, just like, hey, it's their church, right? And God begins to call you. No, it's not their church, it's your church. And you need to use your financial resources. And he may ask, call you to take a big step and a big step of faith and start tithing you never have. He may call you to take a very small step, but a very specific step, and you start giving. And as you start doing, God begins blessing, God begins using, and he begins changing you. And so are you serving? Is, are you taking that step? Uh, a, third, a third step. I'm going to call it sharing. And by sharing, I'm talking about sharing Christ. 
as the temple of God, we exist for the sake of the world, that we would share the message, the good news of Jesus with those who don't know. And so the question is, in your life, is that part of your life as a priest of Jesus? Uh, And here at Rocky Peak, we have a term, a lot of you are familiar with it, we call it one lives. And you can have multiple one lives. But a one life is someone that you pray for in your life. Someone that you say, God, is there someone in my life already? Maybe a neighbor, a teammate, a coworker, uh, a relative, a friend. Someone who doesn't know you, but you are working on to draw them to. And you want me to partner with you in praying for their salvation regularly and investing in a real relationship, loving them well. So when the time comes and they ask about my faith, they ask about you, they ask about, I, I have an opportunity out of this relationship to share a little bit of my story, what you've done in my life, a little bit of your story of what you've done for us, and invite them here to the temple to, to come and see. And so for some of you, that may be the next step. You may say, you know what, yeah, I've never really taken that upon myself, that this is part of being part of the royal priesthood, of sharing the message of Jesus. So you, your step is to begin to pray, God, would you show me if there's someone in my life that you want to begin praying for? there. And then this fourth step is one that flows powerfully out of this text today, and that is to build bridges. What we've seen today is that Jesus' vision is to build a community, a temple, where old walls are broken down, walls of every kind, socioeconomic, racial, educational, uh, theological, um, background, uh, to break it down. Uh, And so one of the biggest walls in Paul's day was Jews and Gentiles. That was the biggest wall. But in other places, he writes about the other walls. That God's vision is to create this community of love that is learning how to love one another, even though we come from different backgrounds and different experiences. And catch this, it's when the world sees that happening. Jesus said in John 17, that is how the world will know that I am who I claim to be. When they see unity in my people. This is why the Apostle Paul has worked so hard for years collecting a financial offering for the church in Jerusalem. Because he wants to say, we as Gentiles love you and we honor you for being the conduit through which Messiah came and we just want to build that relationship. He was building bridges. You know, one of the things I love that's happening here at Rocky Peak, it's something we've longed for, it's something we've prayed for. For those of you who've been here for any length of time, you see this even the last couple of years, but we are growing incredibly in our racial diversity as a church. It's something that we've longed for. And, you know, but the, the thing about that, and, and this is something people want to talk about, the thing about that, with that comes challenges, doesn't it? That it's easier just to hang out with people that are like you, whatever you is, right? When, when you start hanging out with people that are different from you, there are different things, there are different cultural things, there are different communication. And there's sort of barriers, and what I want you to catch is, as followers of Jesus, to create his vision is to break down those walls that separate us and to build bridges. Let me give you an example. Some of you will remember back, maybe six, eight weeks ago, I can't remember, but there was a week of terrible violence in our country, racial violence, and you remember there was a shooting in the South, and then it led to the five policemen being shot in Dallas. Remember that week, which was a horrible week. It was a devastating time in our nation. And so that weekend, when I got up, uh, I I just kind of, I mentioned it briefly before I went to teaching, and I just prayed for our nation. And if you're here, um, you know, I just prayed 
for God's uh, blessing on a nation, but I prayed for God's forgiveness too. I just prayed for his forgiveness for uh, our, uh, the sin of racism that is still such a big part of our, of our nation. Um, and I prayed that truth and uh, that we as Christians would stand for what's right and true and good wherever it is, right? That we would not stand with one side or another, but we'd stand for what's right and true and good. And he would give us wisdom. And I prayed for our officers here in this congregation. And so we had this time of prayer. And so, and I just, I just kind of did that. I didn't think much about it other than just flowing from my heart. You know, I didn't think that. So I got an email the next week. It was from a young African American woman in our congregation, and uh, she thanked me for that, and specifically for just praying about the sin of racism. And she shared her story, and it was so powerful. And she, what she shared is that that week had been so distressing for her as a young African uh, American woman, it had been so distressing for her, and she was afraid, literally afraid to come to church here, because she was afraid of how it would be handled. And she loves his church, and she loves me. And in such a whirlwind week, she'd had such emotional pain. The thought that her church would handle it poorly was just scared her to death. Almost too much. And so she called another uh, young single uh, African-American woman who attends here as part of us here. And she said, would you come with me? Because another woman felt exactly the same way. And so they sat here. I mean, it was a Saturday night, about third row back. And as I prayed that night, she shared with me, they began to weep. Because in that moment, their church became a safe place. Um, Someone saw their pain. And it it was such an interesting conversation because it started this email conversation between both these women. One of these women who uh, is... uh, it's a gifted young professional, and she grew up in Boston, and she has a younger brother, and so this wasn't like an ancient of days. This is, and she, she told me that her brother, they're, they're growing up in Boston, that her mom would tell her younger brother every day when he would leave the house, you know, as a teenager or whatever, as a young man, what do you do when you're, if you're ever stopped, what do you do? He said, I know, mom, I put my hands on the wheels, and I yes, sir, I don't push back. And, he, and just hearing that firsthand story touched me so much, you know, that it would be like that. Many of you know that my life group, we're just so like, interracial. You know, we've got all kinds of African-American couples, Puerto Rican couples, Indonesian, Colombian, you know, a few of us white folks. Uh, and it's just been so rich, it's been so rich growing and learning, you know? And so, but here is a beautiful thing is that as we process with this young African-American woman, she said, can you help me? Like, I, I just counsel her. I said, the thing is, as a follower of Jesus, we always have to stand with what's right and true and good. We don't stand on one side or another. We stand with truth wherever it leads us. And when things come up, we have to, Say, where is Jesus standing? We can't just go to one side. We just have to seek this out. And she said, well, how can I do that? Because I know as a young African, I've got prejudice in my life because of my life experiences. And I had this idea. And so I said to her, I said, hey, 
I don't know if you'd be interested, but we've got a lot of amazing officers here in our church, and some of them are white. How would you feel if I brokered a meeting between you two and a white officer that you could sit down as brothers and sisters in Christ and share your experiences? And she said, that'd be really scary, but I would, I would like to do that. And so I reached out to a man that I, I completely trusted, and about four or five weeks ago, they sat out here on the patio, and they met for the first time. These two African-American sisters, this white brother, and they shared their life experiences, and it was incredibly healing. And after that, he said, I'd love for you to meet my family. And they said, we would love to meet your family. And then they said, well, can we meet again? And so they met a second time. And then he even invited them, would you be interested in going with me to my police headquarters, just on the inside to see that? And this one said, that is so scary, but I think it'd be healing for me. And then I went, this is what the church of Jesus is about. This is where we break down walls. And in our life groups, whether they're, they're socioeconomic or whether they're national or regional or they're political or they're, um, they're racial, that Jesus' vision is to bring a people together out of a broken world from every background and to create a new community that's not just a community, it is a temple of a living God where walls are broken down and we love one another so the world that is increasingly broken and fractured can look on and say, I don't know what's going on over there, but that's the way life should be. Amen? So the question is, are you playing your part? Let's pray. God, as we come together as your people in your place, we just want to acknowledge we have not always got this right and we're a long ways from where we need to be. But we want to grow, God. We want to break down walls. We want to do our part. We want to participate. We want to share the message. We want to create a place. It's a temple of the living God where you can be revealed, speak, heal, guide. And then out from here, the message goes so people out in the dark world can come and meet the living God. So, Pride, we pray that you would use us. We pray that here and now, that truly we would be a place where freedom rings. And we pray as we bring our gifts, our offerings, as we enter into worship, you'd meet with us now, us uh, as your people, you as our God, that right now, that we would experience you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me? God, we just pray today that as a church, we would be part of what you're doing in the world. God, we pray that you would break down barriers and that we would engage, that we would understand this calling to follow you cannot be achieved on our own. That we have to engage in community, build those relationships, use our gifts, share the message, and break down the wall so that this place can be a place where your mercy shows in a world that's so dark and so desperate in need of light. And so God, we pray that you would work in our lives to, to fulfill your vision, that your kingdom would come in the here and now and that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, and it would start right here and right now and with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. 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 Well, a couple things as you go. First of all, if you need prayer about anything, our prayer team is ready for you on the far wall of badges on. Love to pray with you. Hope you can be here next week. It's next week we will wrap up this series. 
uh, Piercing the Darkness. And then we'll take a two-week break and do this special series called The Culture Crisis. They'll be preparing us for elections in the aftermath. I'm looking forward to that. And then we'll kick off into the fifth and final that we'll finish uh, right before Christmas. And so uh, looking forward to that. So I hope you can be with us next week. Until this week, me. Your life be a place of light in a dark world. May the love of Christ be evident in you. May justice and mercy be the signs of your life. May you be bridge builders in a broken world that the love of Christ might be shed and his compassion embrace us all. Amen? God bless you. I'll see you next week.